worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back in the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already On a cool August night in 2000, Bonnie Levine was putting her children to bed when she heard the phone ring. Busy with the demands of little ones, she let it go to the answering machine. The caller, Bonnie's best friend Aaron, was saying she wanted to see her, that the pair should meet up. Aaron lived alone with her cat for company, and the best friend spent a lot of time together, so the late call and the message were far from unusual. That message was the last time that Bonnie would hear her best friend's voice. Erin Rebecca Taylor was born December 18, 1975, and she was originally from Madison, Wisconsin. She and Bonnie met at a women's shelter in 1998. Erin, 22 and fresh out of an abusive relationship, was at the shelter getting back on her feet. Bonnie was attending workshops. She was also a domestic violence survivor. The pair became fast friends, and when Bonnie's mother suggested that she move to Michigan to be closer to her, Erin decided that a move and a fresh start was just what she needed as well. Erin moved in early 1999 and lived with Bonnie and her family in Forsyth Township until she got a place of her own in Marquette. Erin's home on Wright Street was a small two-bedroom place on a corner lot, the perfect size for Erin as she built a new life in Michigan. Erin didn't need a lot of space. As long as she had her violin and her computer, she was home. Erin loved chatting with people, and she turned to the internet to meet friends. She took part in chat rooms and had conversations with people from around the U.S., and Canada. An animal lover, Erin got a cat, a Siamese she named Sable for company. While she looked for full-time work, Erin signed up to Manpower Staffing Services, a temping agency, in June of 99. In July of 2000, Erin was assigned to the Upper Peninsula Medical Center in Marquette, located less than a mile from her house. Proximity was important because Erin did not have a car, and she relied on public transportation walking, or a good friend to get around. By all accounts, she was enjoying this assignment, and her co-workers only had positive things to say about her. In late July, shortly after she had started at the medical center, Erin sent Bonnie a card. Inside, she had written, You will always be here in my heart. A sweet gesture, but a little out of the ordinary for Erin, who preferred to spend quality time with people rather than give gifts. On Thursday, August 10th, Erin went over to Bonnie's house. When she arrived, she told Bonnie that she needed to talk to her, 
but quickly hopped on Bonnie's computer, and Aaron didn't talk to her about anything significant after that. The next day, Aaron was due to meet a man that she had met in a chat room, a man that would travel from Windsor, Ontario, Canada, a drive of several hours, to see Aaron, so she may have been online confirming these plans. The next day arrived and Aaron went to work, finishing at 5 p.m. as usual. She's bid farewell to her co-workers, and after that, her timeline gets murky. She was due to meet the Canadian man at a hotel in Munising, some 43 miles away. It's not clear how she planned to get to the hotel, because as I mentioned earlier, Aaron did not own a car, but she was due to be there that evening. When the Canadian man arrived, he asked about renting a room, but was told the hotel was fully booked. He waited for Aaron, as planned, but, according to the man, she never showed up. This man made his way to Marquette, stopping at the library to use the internet and at Aaron's house, but he couldn't get a hold of her online and there was no answer at her home, so the man decided to return to Windsor. According to Aaron's phone records, she was home and making phone calls up to 10 p.m. on the night of August 11th. Now, it's worth mentioning that some early reporting states that Aaron made a phone call to Bonnie after midnight saying she was excited about meeting the Canadian man, a meetup that would have been already missed at this point. It's possible that the phone message about meeting the Canadian was from earlier in the week, and the early reporting had the dates wrong. In later reports, Aaron called Bonnie closer to 10 o'clock, a call she missed as she was attending to her children with a message left saying that the women needed to get together. After 10 p.m., no more phone calls were made or answered. Family and friends didn't hear from Aaron all weekend, and by Monday the 14th, Bonnie had a strange feeling in the pit of her stomach, gnawing away at her. Something was wrong. Bonnie went to Aaron's house and let herself in. Sable, the Siamese cat, was alone. His food and water bowls were empty. Now, Erin adored Sable, and she would never leave for a weekend without ensuring the cat was taken care of. Bonnie also found that a window was unlocked, and again, listeners, this is not something Erin would do if she was leaving the house. The next day, Erin was reported missing by another acquaintance, and after a few days, authorities were concerned that she had met with foul play due to signs of a struggle in her home. Now keep that in mind because we're going to circle back to it later in the episode when I interview Bonnie. The following week, August 20th, a sheriff's deputy was following up on some off-road driving in the Nagani Township area of Marquette County. The deputy had been in the area the day before for the same reason and had seen a motorcyclist riding without a helmet. At the time, this was illegal. By the time the deputy turned his vehicle around, the motorcyclist had disappeared. The deputy returned to see if he could work out where the bike may have disappeared to and maybe narrow down the location of the rider. While looking at a snowmobile trail near County Road 492, the deputy spotted something a dozen feet off the trail, and he exited his cruiser so he could get a closer look. Lying in the grass was a badly decomposed body. The body was lying face up, and it was partially clothed, but the body was concealed beneath a blanket. When the body was removed to be taken for autopsy, the rest of the clothing was found underneath the body, and this clothing was neatly folded. This body was so badly decomposed that biological sex could not be determined until the autopsy, 
which found the victim was female. Once the sex was confirmed, it was assumed the body belonged to Aaron Taylor. However, this would not be confirmed until her dental records were compared. Only then could they state that Aaron Rebecca Taylor had been murdered. While her cause of death was not initially released to the media, it was eventually reported that Aaron was strangled and the ligature used was found around her neck. Because police had been investigating Aaron's disappearance with the assumption that she had not left willingly, suspects had already been contacted and questioned by the time her body was found. Police were very interested in talking to the Canadian man that she was supposed to meet the night she went missing. He was questioned and ruled out early. He could account for all of his movements on the 11th, and he passed a polygraph. Investigators believe that Aaron never showed up for their meeting, and he left town confused and disappointed. Aaron's computer was seized, and investigators found out that she had been chatting to a few other people online. This included a man from South Carolina who was contacted. Now, it would take a while for investigators to get in touch with the man in South Carolina, but when they did, he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. None of the other online contacts were seen as credible suspects, and the line of investigation was dropped. Along with seizing her computer, forensic teams combed Aaron's house twice and collected samples of blood, saliva, and fibers in the hopes of getting a DNA match. Evidence suggested that Aaron had been killed in her home and then taken to where she was found. However, to this day, authorities remain tight-lipped about the exact nature of the evidence they have. With little to go on, the local police and sheriff collaborated with the Michigan State Police technicians and the Behavioral Sciences and Violent Crimes Unit. This was, according to the Mining Journal, the largest joint criminal probe since the 1980s investigation of the Paul Girard killing in Marquette. If you're interested in learning about the case of Paul Girard, we covered it very early in the podcast, episode 38, entitled Anatomy of a Murder. After collaborating with other departments, it was reported that the evidence pointed toward a local. The evidence pointed at someone Aaron knew and someone with knowledge of the local area. The trail where Aaron was found was very secluded, and it was not visible from the nearest road. Where her body was left was the kind of place you would only know about if you were from the area, and again, this suggests a local. Aaron's body was laid face up and covered with a blanket. Her clothing was neatly folded. This shows some care was taken, and this suggests that the killer knew Aaron. Investigators continued to pursue leads and cleared 15 suspects through alibis and polygraphs. On September 8th, authorities announced they were trying to locate two witnesses who were seen on August 12th by a passerby near where Aaron's body was found. The witnesses they wanted to speak with were described as a male and a female driving a blue or light blue four-wheel drive vehicle. By late October, it was announced that these witnesses were actually the prime suspects. They were not named, and they have not been named publicly to this day. Investigators have only said they were locals who knew Aaron, and they had been unable to eliminate them as persons of interest in her case. Surveillance footage from an unnamed local business captured the suspects driving past on the night of Aaron's murder. This business was located between Aaron's house and the location where her body was found. 
Search warrants were executed, allowing investigators to search vehicles, houses, and a 10-acre plot of land in nearby Chocolay Township, and this plot of land belonged to the suspects. Investigators were hoping to find personal belongings, such as Erin's necklace that was missing, or her purse or her journal, or any photos or correspondence that would prove a connection between the suspects and Erin. What they did find during the search was more than a little unsettling. They uncovered a large envelope filled with newspaper clippings and photos about Aaron's disappearance and murder, and another folder with information about Aaron, along with cards and letters from her. After this discovery, media coverage slowed to a trickle because no new information was released. In November, investigators assured the community that bringing Aaron's killer or killers to justice was still their top priority. However, they did not have enough evidence to press charges. They told the press, it is a complicated case. Now, Aaron's friend Bonnie, who we will hear from shortly, wasted no time in setting up a memorial for Aaron. Three weeks after her body was found, Bonnie went back with a white cross made by Bonnie's stepfather, with Aaron's name written in black marker. Bonnie said that when she first went to the site to place the marker, she could still see the indent in the ground made by Aaron's body. And I find that so sad. This marker was soon joined by a smaller red cross with the words of Psalm 23 written on it, a cat ornament, and a few other items. After the autopsy, Aaron's remains were cremated and sent to her parents in Wisconsin, who would not inter them until the case was solved. So there was no grave to visit, and the site where her body was found became the memorial site for Aaron Taylor. A year after Aaron's body was found, the black marker on the white cross had started to fade, and so had the hope once held by those who loved Aaron. A year on, and investigators were no closer to an arrest than they were in the weeks after the murder. Investigators said in reporting that they had spent thousands of hours on the case, and that it would be a marathon, not a sprint. The reporting from this time mentions a suspect, singular, instead of the suspects that were mentioned earlier. Two years after the murder, investigators released a detail that was very interesting. Their prime suspect was the person who had reported Aaron missing in the first place. And this is something we will touch on during our interview with Bonnie. From this point, Aaron's case makes the local paper once a year, on the anniversary of her body being found. Articles show a photo of Aaron. Some show a photo of Bonnie next to the memorial and include a short interview with her, as well as the same few details that were known about the case. Bonnie continues to be the driving force, the one who is determined to keep Aaron's name in the media, and the one who was insistent that investigators don't forget that they still had a case to solve. Five years after Aaron's murder, the memorial site was becoming overgrown and harder to find. Bonnie still visited the site on the anniversary and on Aaron's birthday. In this yearly update, investigators said they still didn't have enough evidence to arrest the suspect, the same suspect they had five years prior. A year later, evidence was being retested using new methods, and the DNA found was being run through the ever-expanding DNA database in the hopes that something would match and provide a physical link to a suspect. Nothing ever came of this new testing. In desperation, Bonnie thought about offering a reward for information. $500. All that she could raise. 
Aaron's case was described by Bonnie as an open wound, and Bonnie said she would always be there to pick the scab off so it wouldn't heal and Aaron would not be forgotten. After 11 years, students at Northern Michigan University looked at Aaron's files as part of their cold case class run by a detective. After so long, fresh eyes couldn't hurt. Students signed a confidentiality agreement and provided investigators with new theories and angles. Unfortunately, nothing came of these ideas. Two decades after her best friend's murder, Bonnie is still advocating for Aaron, despite no movement and no new leads in over a decade. She insists on being the voice that Aaron lost. Bonnie has since moved back to Wisconsin, but still makes the trip to pay her respects at the memorial, rarely missing an anniversary. After all her years of advocacy, Bonnie was understandably very frustrated at the thought of Aaron's case being shelved, the evidence in a box in a storage room and forgotten. Inspired by wanting to help people like herself, Bonnie put herself through college, studying forensic sciences and wanting to join the police. She knew she would never get a chance to work Aaron's case, something she wouldn't be emotionally able to do even if it was allowed but she wanted to give voices to those who had had their voices stripped from them. About 16 years after Aaron's murder, a former Michigan State Police detective turned founder of Michigan Backcountry Search and Rescue, Michael Niger, helped Bonnie set up the Justice for Aaron Taylor website and provided the money for a $5,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. The website, which was invaluable when making this episode, contains information about Aaron, her disappearance and murder, missing posters, and every single news article written in the 22 years since Aaron was murdered. Today, Aaron's case is so cold, it is practically frozen. The yearly updates stopped around year 20. Details about the case are few and far between. Investigators, one of which I spoke with myself, remain tight-lipped about nearly every aspect of the case since it is still an open investigation. Bonnie, now a grandmother, talks about her friend and tries to get Aaron's name in the media as much as she can. She still mourns the life of a friend who never got to get married, have children, have grandchildren. Bonnie has an idea about who killed her friend, but it's nothing she can prove. She said, There were some things that happened when she first went missing. These people that I thought were weird at the time, but I never suspected them. Makes sense. The things that were said and things that were done, it makes more sense now that they would say things the way that they did. Unfortunately, the main suspect in Aaron's case is now deceased. His possible co-conspirators still live in the area, not too far from the little house Aaron shared with her beloved cat, Sable. And listeners, before we get to the interview with Bonnie, let's have a word from this week's sponsor. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. All throughout this episode, we've heard about Bonnie and how she's advocated for Aaron's unsolved murder. Now we're going to hear from Bonnie herself, who will start off talking about her relationship with Aaron. Um, Aaron was quite lively. (laughs) 
she liked to do what Erin went like to do. Kind of in her own way, she knew that she only had a little bit of life and she wanted to live it to the fullest. That's just kind of my gist on it because if she wanted to do it, she was going to do it. So she, she was adventurous. And very adventurous. Um, she tried to get me to jump off the black rocks and I'm like, nope. <laughs> but nope. And she was a musician? Oh, she loved to play her violin. Very good. Um, I had a piano in my house. She would come over and play the piano for me. So she was very musically talented, especially on her violin. I've seen photos of her playing the violin, and, and it looks like she's really enjoying and involved in the music when she's playing. Oh, she was. She loved her violin. And she was very, very good at it. We met um, at a women's shelter. I was one of the babysitters, and she was going there for counseling. So we kind of met. I just kept looking at her, and she just kept looking at me. And I don't know, and I had made a joke about, yeah, maybe you can come live in my basement. (laughs) It was was just a joke because I had a full basement that was all, you know, fixed up and everything. And um, a couple months later, she called me and asked if I was serious. And I said, well, no, but I could be. I mean, if you need a place. So um, she came in and lived in my basement. Down the road, we decided to move to Upper Michigan to move next door to my mom. And then she did her thing and started going back to the church, and she met these people from church and ended up eventually moving in with them. So she was a Jehovah's Witness? She was just getting back into it, yeah. And because I wasn't, it was the whole, well, I can't really associate with you, but I'm going to anyway. So how long did the two of you live together? In my house, she was there for a good, I think, year. And tell me about the events leading up to August 11th, 2000. Well, she would come over my house every once in a while to use my computer because she didn't have one. So she'd step over and get on the computer. And it was the Thursday before she disappeared. She had come over my house. She had left the church early. And she came over my house and she just, she walked in the door and she said, woman, we've got to talk. And I knew something was up, but then she got on the computer and did her thing on the computer. And then she asked me to take her home and she never talked to me. And that was the last time I saw her. So, and I kind of wish I would have pushed her. Yeah. What does I need to talk mean? Right. I just figured it was something ridiculous because with her, it kind of always was, but... (laughs) And then she went missing on the 11th, but it took a couple of days for her to be, for anyone to realize that she was missing. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, she was supposed to meet some guy up in Munising from Canada um, and go camping for the weekend. And so I didn't think anything of it, you know, until Monday when I hadn't heard from her Monday. And I kind of, I had my mom watch my six-year-old kind of in the middle of the night, and I went over to her house because I was just worried that I hadn't heard from her, and she wasn't answering her phone. Uh, her answering machine was full, and um, I could kind of look through the window, and I saw the cat, and he was meowing, and his food dish was empty, no food, no water. So I tried all the locks, and I didn't get in, and I found a bedroom window open, so I went in through the window, and I fed and watered the cat and left her a note. And I still hadn't heard from her, so 
I had called her work on Tuesday morning to see if anybody had heard from her, if she'd been to work, if she had called in, and they said they hadn't heard from her. So I started calling around to uh, those friends of hers from the church who ended up being the suspects, and they said they hadn't heard from her, and I told them, well, I'm going to call the police because this isn't right, and the woman had said, very strange, no, we'll call the police. It'll be better coming from us, Hmm. and that was her exact words, and I didn't understand it at the time, but I do now. What did she mean by that? I'm just thinking that to throw themselves off suspicion, they reported her missing. Because if I would have reported her missing, they would have probably gone to them first. Hey, have you heard from her? And there was just a lot of things that went on in that time with these people that I didn't understand at the time because no way in the world that I suspect they had anything to do with it. Um, Like they asked me to meet them over at Aaron's house to see if anything was out of place, which all along they had been telling the police that I had a key and I never had a key. They were trying to, I think, throw me off their scent. Okay, deflect. I I didn't suspect them at all until these weird things started happening. Um, Like meet me over at Aaron's house and see if anything's out of place. Well, there was some things thrown around the living room in a circle books and notepad and things like that like she'd been trying to get away and it just got thrown and they're like no I think she was just laying on the floor writing out a card or something like that and I'm like no I don't think so they're like well let's just clean all this up and I'm like no let's not so they proceeded to clean everything up and there was footprints on the carpet that I pointed out and the police never saw those they disappeared after this cleaning So they cleaned up the crime scene while she was still missing and before police saw the crime scene. Exactly. And I didn't want anything to do with cleaning up. I did not want anything to do with cleaning up. They just cleaned it up, swept the kitchen floor. Her backpack was sitting by the front door. And the woman had taken a small notebook out and she was leafing through this notebook. It was handwritten stuff. And she was like, oh, she's talking about walking off into the woods. And she put the notebook back into the backpack. Well, the police took that backpack and they never found that notebook. I'm thinking Aaron had written down what was going on. She saw it, freaked out, and went back when I wasn't there and took it. Are these people still living in the area? The wife is. The man passed away a couple of years ago. But she is still living and she still knows what's going on. She still knows what happened. I know she does. Erin had lost some weight, and she was wearing some shorts overalls that were too big for her. Well, when they moved her, they kind of fell off, and they were neatly folded underneath the blanket. And no man that I know has ever folded anything. (laughs) (laughs) Mine will leave his stuff in the laundry basket for months if I let him. What would you want people to know about Erin? She deserves justice. She was a person, too, and she can't speak for herself right now. Somebody's got to do it for her, and I'm going to keep doing it until something happens. Either I know he's passed away, but he's not going to go out of this world scot-free. He did something. He took her life. 
and I know he's probably paying for it now, but still there there needs to be that, hey, he did it. Yes, we need to and see. why? I want the why. If you have information on the murder of Aaron Taylor, please contact Detective Heslip of the Marquette Police Department. We'll be back on the 15th with a whole new episode. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. The drive to go further and reach higher. The same thing that inspires you, inspires us. At Strayer University, we're always searching for new ways to make education more affordable. That's why we offer access to up to 10 no-cost gen ed courses to help you save time and money so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. No-cost gen ed provided by Strayer University affiliates of Field Learning. Eligibility rules apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF.